The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome, welcome, one and all. Welcome to Night Fright. I am your host, Brent Holland. Oh, baby, if we got a show for you tonight, don't go anywhere. Outside, the storm is raining, is raging. Rain, big time rain's coming down, melting all the snow we got nailed with last week. But it's a great night to settle in and get comfy in your most comfy chair. Get the comforter, get a beverage of your choice going. Get the tea going, get the coffee going. Or get a nice warm hot chocolate tonight because it's damp out there, it's nasty. And for the next two hours, we're going to take you on one heck of a ride with our guest tonight, Robbie Lunt. He's written a book along with co-author David Roundtree called, Are You Ready for This? This is where we're going tonight, folks. Demon Street, USA. Tonight, we're going to look at a lake altar and a totem discovery. Something called the Devil's Millhopper, which is an ancient gateway to alternate realities. A chilling blue arc over a gravestone with the epitaph, not dead. Windows fly open in this house. They open invisibly. Uh, poor Robbie was shoved on top of a, a walkway uh, hovering zillions of miles <laughs> above an auditorium and he almost was shoved to his death we're going to get to that tonight just let me tell you a little bit about robbie robbie lunt is an archaeologist professional uh energy work in tai chi recce for more than 20 years he's a member of the way of Na nature fellowship he works as a stage technician in the entertainment biz and he lives in nevada Robbie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us tonight, and thanks for such a great spooky book. Brent, it's good to be here. Um, sorry about some of the technical difficulties we're having, but uh, Dave and I have been batting a thousand every time we interview about this book. There's just some kind of anomaly happens with the uh, technical side of it, so nothing to be worried about. Um, you we're think the other side's trying to not let you get the word out somehow? You know, I actually, I, I think that they, they don't want people to realize that they exist. Mm. It's much easier to screw with people if they don't believe in you. <laughs> I bet. You know, you know, I say that in jest, but in all seriousness, um, I remember having a wonderful woman on the show by the name of Christine Corda, 
we had to restart the show 23 times. Now, what was unique about Christine Corda, and you can find her uh, story in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com, is she went through a real Roman Catholic exorcism. And she was telling the full story of that. And uh, 23 times, folks, Skype went out. We had to restart. We even rescheduled for a second day, and we still continued with the problems. We were plagued with them. And, um, you know, folks, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but absolutely there's something there without question. Okay, Robbie, let's start off. In the book, you've got a terrifying chapter called The Demon Dog. Can you tell us about the demon dog? Because this shit sent chills up and down my spine. You know, it was interesting. I think the whatever it was that was manifesting, really, it, it appeared differently to other people. But to me, it looked like probably a Rottweiler-sized dog, mm. but it was pitch black. And you know that famous speech in Jaws where they talk about the shark's eyes and how they're flat? And, and lifeless, this dog's eyes were, were more than that. The, the light seemed to suck into him. If you looked at him too long, it, it, you started to be drawn into it also. It was a very frightening thing. And when it opened its mouth and its tongue came out, it was just it, it, shades of blackness that you wouldn't even believe are possible. I mean, again, not, not necessarily the lack of light, but just the absorption of any kind of light. It was the, truly a terrifying creature to behold. <laughs> any idea why it manifested as a dog, Robbie? Um, you know, I think it was... When these things manifest, that's the thing about demons in particular, they always try to manifest in something that is your deepest and darkest fear. And I did have an episode when I was a child where I got bit up around my face by a dog. And I think it was trying to find that thing that would instill the most terror in me. Um, I love dogs, but uh, I think that's a lot of what it was. Uh, and you, you'll find a lot of cases in these instances that it, it finds what scares you the deepest. And then it goes for that because that's where you're most vulnerable. So it almost reads your mind, finds out your most fearful experience from your past, from your life, and then recreates that just to, uh, for example, if a person's afraid of clowns, it might take on the persona of a clown, something along those lines? Well, exactly. In fact, you know, the, I always hate doing this because I, I know it sounds a little, but if you take Stephen King's novel, It!, the reality exactly. is is that Pennywise appears as a clown to a lot of people, but he also appears as those things that they are most afraid of. So, yes, if you were most afraid of a clown, I think you'd have just a, a horrible, uh, frightening thing standing there in front of you with big feet. Um, but it wasn't that for me. For me, it was the dog, and uh, it was truly frightening. Now, the dog was transparent, and uh, a friend of yours could walk through it. And that what was chilling to me. She couldn't see it. Can you tell us exactly what the dog did that really terrified you? You know, in that instance, I, there's a thing in Florida. It's called a, a, a Florida room. And three sides, it's all windows. And it's so you can sit in a shaded area but still have all the bright light. And, you know, you read all the stories when you're growing up. And these things aren't supposed to come out in daylight, darn it. 
and it was about two, three in the afternoon. And Penelope, who, the, Penelope is the woman who was really the center of all of this activity. She's the one that drew David and I into the whole story. But Penelope and I were sitting in my house, not her house, and we looked into the Florida room, and there in the bright sunshine, the dog was just sitting there with its tongue lolling out and, you know, staring at us. And, and I got the distinct feeling that if it could actually get into the house proper, that it would be ripping our throats out. And while we were sitting there staring at it, we had, at the time, Crystal was the absolute most perfect roommate we could have had because she didn't see or feel anything. And that was, for this instance, it was good. I mean, she had been listening to us and she was poo-pooing it. And I'll be damned if she didn't go in there and go, what are you guys staring at? And then walked right through the dog. I, Penelope and I just kind of, our, our jaws hit the ground. It, it, and it wavered and then it reformed. And then she walked back through it and kind of said, well, I don't see anything and stormed out of the house. So, you know, it was definitely appearing for the two of us. On the, you have to understand with Crystal, though, that this house was haunted anyway. The house I lived in at the time was also haunted. But it was very benign ghosts. We got along with them. So there wasn't ever any problem. But the whole time Crystal lived there, she was never aware of anything that was... And she lived in the most active room in the house. So, yeah, if you are close to these things, you won't see them. Um, if you want to get into the nature of reality later, I have a whole explanation of why. And it actually makes sense. If it's not in your reality, you're not going to see them. I definitely want to get into that with a question. Now, was there any residue in this thing? What finally got the dog to disappear? And was there any residue kind of evil energy left over afterwards? Well, it, previously, David had given me a bag of what he had called sacred corn. And I called him in an absolute tizzy fit. I was, I was freaked out. I was totally terrified. Um, I could barely dial the phone to get him on it. And he told me to take 13 kernels of this corn, hold it in my hand, put as much intent and as much light as I could into it, and then throw it at the dog. And that's what I did. And it was, I threw it at the dog, and I heard in my head, I'm sure it wasn't out loud, but it could have been just the loudest screech, and then boom, it shot off out through the wall. Um, immediately, Penelope and I, we went outside and stood in the sunshine, and she had to smoke a cigarette, and I had to shake for a little while. And when we came back, uh, Dave at that point had gotten, had come over to the house and he was there with us and we went in and he asked the same question, well, what was there when you were done? Well, I didn't know I ran out of the house. Um, so we went back and we looked and I couldn't, I found, I believe it was three kernels of corn. And when I threw them, they were all plump, dried corn. And when I was done throwing them, they were all shriveled up like something had just sucked the life out of them. And there was actually little spots of ectoplasm, um, for lack of better term, all around the room. So, yeah, there was something left. Then came the interesting part, though, Brent. My wife had a very good friend at the time who was incredibly um, sensitive. And I just happened to be at one of the back bedrooms looking out the door when they pulled up. 
And when she got out of the car, she had to stop and hold herself on the on the door frame because there was such a, I guess, an echo of that energy that it, it rocked her boat. Um, she almost didn't come into the house. I actually had to go out and explain to her that everything was gone. And even then, it took a little bit of coaxing to get her in. So, yes, there was physical residue. There was uh, psychic residue. Um, it was leaving a wake wherever it was going, that's for sure. Demon Street, USA, the true story of a real haunted house. Robbie Luntz, our guest. David Roundtree is uh, the co-author as well. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can get the book from the comfort of your own home, as I like to say. Now, this book is full of twists and turns. It almost reads like a fiction novel. And uh, kudos to you for that. But it's not. And that's what's terrifying and absolutely terrifying. Now, how did you come to get onto this creepy, creepy house? At uh, one of the broadcasts I was doing, um, Penelope was the wife of one of the engineers. And we were just sitting by the banks of the Suwannee River in North Florida. And she turned to me. Everybody kind of wandered off. And we were just talking. And she turned to me, and she proceeded to, to tell me that every time she fell asleep, this big giant eye would appear in her field of vision, and then she would be pulled out of her body, and this old man would appear in front of her, and she would actually, it would take her around the property she was living on, and this property was three houses, and it would take her into each house and show her the ghost that was at each house. And... I didn't roll my eyes. I actually took it for granted. I, I had been reading about the paranormal since I was really all honesty, since I was able to read. Um, I've always been very much interested in it. So when Penelope started telling me this story, I was like, wow, that sounds interesting. And she told me a little bit more. There were parties out on her porch that when she'd open the door, there was no one there. Yet when the door was closed, she could see all of these shadows out there. So she told me this, and then night started to fall, and we went into the, I had to start going to work, and I actually forgot about it. And that was, I believe that was June, or May, actually. And then on Labor Day weekend of that same year, I went to visit a friend. And sitting back in the shadows, there was somebody back there, and when that person leaned forward, I realized it was Penny. And the transformation that had occurred in her was just, it was mind-boggling. I mean, her hair was standing out. and She had deep, dark circles under her eyes. She, she looked a lot like Grandmama from the Adams family. It's the easiest way to describe it. And then she proceeded to tell me how things had gotten much worse. This was, uh, we have to set the context. This was in 1985. So her husband had gone on a film shoot in the Soviet Union, which means he was completely gone. There was no way really to get a hold of him. And, you know, when you start looking at the similarities in hauntings and this kind of thing, whatever it was that was there, it knew that she was alone. So all of the activity started to radically ramp up. And it had gotten to be too much for her. So the night before I saw her that Labor Day weekend, she had given up and she had tried to stay at her landlord's house and in the middle of the night she said she heard a noise she looked into the kitchen and the stove was just dancing 
And that wasn't the worst of it. She looked at the end of the room and in the solid wood floor, she saw a wave appear and it rolled from one end of the room to the other, picked her up, dropped her on the floor, hit the wall and then rolled right back. And that's when she went running out of that house screaming. And at that point, she hadn't been back to the property. So it, she asked, uh, you know, I asked her what she was going to do. And she said, well, I'm not going to go back there. And I said, well, I have a friend. We can go and let's go check this out. And in all honesty, Brent, there was no investigation. There was no let's set this up. It was, wow, this place is so hopping that I'll bet you that we can see anything just no matter what. Because there is so much going on there. Let's go see a ghost. And quite frankly, the minute we crossed onto the property, we knew there was something pretty a very intense energy going on there. I felt like a gorilla had jumped on my back. The air actually got thicker. It almost got hard to breathe. It was it was as though the property, the first time we went there, it was as though the property was holding its breath. It was an older home. Okay. Um, and it's a very, if you go down to the south, you see these a lot. And then uh, perpendicular to that, there was another exactly the same with the apartment on top and then a work area underneath and then there was a little bungalow and the bungalow was where her landlord lived so uh, we went into her house and we couldn't go into the bungalow because the landlord wasn't there but the third house she told us was actually the center of all the activity but she also told us we couldn't get into it because the landlord wasn't there and he kept it locked up tight yet when we went because we were curious uh, and looked at the door the lock was hanging open with a rusty key in it. Um, Penelope was pretty freaked about that. So we went into the house and, you know, I, it was interesting. We When we went through the door, because you went through the door after we'd moved everything away from it and took the lock with the rusty key out of the way, you went up the staircase. When you got to the top of the staircase, it, it, I think I even used it in the book. It was like the Emerald City. When you walked in, everything was green. It just glowed a, a sickly green. And it was almost as though it was day glow from the inside. And even in there, it was even holding its, its breath even more. It's like something was ready to happen, but it wasn't going to happen until it figured out who we were. In fact, we went so, up there. So there was a consciousness to it then, you're saying? Oh, yeah. Ooh. I mean, and it was a consciousness you could feel. Mm. And the other thing that I've discovered and that I discovered out of it is there's a, a scent, there's a smell. And it's almost, it's palpable. You can feel it. But it's just, it's this underline. It's not in your face, but it's a subtle. And I've unfortunately run into that a couple of times since then. And it, every time that has been the case. Can so you describe the smell in words? Is that possible? Is it reminiscent of anything that we could relate to? It, it would be like, yeah, it, it's almost an amalgamation of a carnal house, uh, a rotting food, roadkill, that's not, you know, when you go by that a place like that, normally it, it slaps you pretty much in the face. But this isn't a, not there, but it's it's subtly there to where you can almost 
taste that smell it's it's very unpleasant <laughs> it sounds like rotting flesh death sounds like yes that. but it's not again when you're when you're around something like that it really is right there and it gets in your nose but it's not like that it's really it's just it's there but it's not quite enough to make you feel totally uncomfortable and wonder hmm so it, yeah it's it's a very interesting but it is there and it's very obvious when you're in the presence of it and i think it's more the once you have the, that that smell taste it burns itself into your cells so that when it hits you again it's like mm -hmm, i know what that is and i'm going the other way <laughs> That sounds very prudent to me. You see, I wouldn't have been brave enough even though that darn door if I saw it open. I would have just turned around and ran. But you guys went headfirst into this. So you're surrounded by this smell. It's kind of suffocating as well. You've gone up the stairs and everything is emerald green. What happened next? We went back downstairs and Penelope, who would not go up there with us, said, well, you got to see it because you're not going to believe me unless something happens. And so she went back up there with us, and when she went back upstairs with us, the energy definitely had increased. There was almost like a subtle wind that was blowing through the place. Um, it, the feeling of oppression and of just despair had really gotten heavy. When she stepped into the room, it was like, oh, we know this person. At that point, I did looked at a wall and I found this spot in the wall where it looked like there was hair embedded in the paint and the minute I pointed that out that was too much for Penelope she couldn't deal and everybody left the room and we went out of the house at that point now what was very interesting is she kept telling us well you really got to talk to the landlord because these are all his ghosts and uh Unfortunately, Labor Day weekend, three-day weekend, he's gone. He's not back until Tuesday. So we got the stuff we needed, and, and uh, Penelope took the one last chance to go ahead and go into the house, grab clothes, grab, you know, basically her bug-out kit, get it all together, get it out of the house while we were there. And, uh, you know, interesting thing that happened while we were there. While we were in her house on the porch where she always saw the parties, uh, there's a thing called a jealousy window. It's several strips of glass, and then there's a crank handle. And while she and David were discussing everything that was going on, I was watching this window, and it was slowly getting open wider and wider. And the crank wasn't moving. Now, right there, you're breaking the laws of physics. Because when I finally pointed it out, and Dave kind of laughed and said, yes, we've been watching it open, uh, Penelope freaked out. He laughed. You see, once again, I would have bolted for the door, right? <laughs> uh, he laughed, and I was in shock. So, <laughs> but Penelope got pissed, and she grabbed the handle and she cranked it shut, which then showed us that the actual physicality of the unit was all intact. It all worked. The metal gears were there, and it so it was doing something that it shouldn't have been doing. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it, those were the kind of little subtle things that you start going, hmm, I really honestly believe, Brent, that for a lot of this, I really was half in a state of shock, mm -hmm. half in a state of 
awe and getting paid back for spending a you know lifetime at that point of wishing I could have lived in a haunted house or seen a ghost. You got to be very careful what you wish for because uh, you might get it. And so, yeah, you know, a prudent person would have run like hell immediately. But I don't think I have that in me. <laughs> Stick around, folks. The story is Demon Street, USA, the true story of a real haunted house. Our guest tonight is Robbie Lunt. He is co-author with David Roundtree. And uh, Robbie's joining us live all the way from Nevada tonight www.nightfrightshow.com, folks. As always, just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order this book. And this book is full of twists and turns. As I said before, it reminded me of a fiction book. Uh, we had talked about Stephen King before, but this thing's real. And that's the chilling aspect of it all. And we're going to be getting into some more of the things that escalated what in the name of God possessed you? That's the wrong word to use in this in this specific case. <laughs> what in the name of God got you to go back? Because I would have left that sucker and I would have said, yeah, I'm going to just leave this thing alone and you know what? I'm going to back off. What happened to make you want to go back? Well, you know, when we got home, my phone was ringing. And when I picked it up, it was Penelope. And she had just gotten off the phone with her landlord, who decided he needed to cut his vacation short by three days and wanted to meet us at his property at sunset. Huh. So, you know, we got an invitation to come back. <laughs> with free pizza and beer or something? Because honestly, I don't know, you know, if that would have been enough to entice me to go back. But obviously you're cut from a different cloth, so... Okay, you show up at the door, and the landlord's there. Is he all happy now, or? Well, you know, it was very interesting. He First, he wanted to know, he wanted to see who and what we were. And then he really wanted to know what we had seen that day. Um, and then he offered to take us into the the house where most of the stuff was going on, the third building on the property. Uh, when we told him we had already been in there, he flipped. He freaked out because there was no way anybody was supposed to have been in that. He had the only key. He knew he had the only key. He pulled his key ring out of his pocket to show us how he had the only key to that lock until we went over there and looked and it was still hanging open with the rusty key in it. So he was taken quite by surprise. Um, was he aware of what was behind the door? And is that why he was keeping it locked? After everyone had left that night, and it was just David, and the landlord's name was Clevis, and I were sitting there, he turned and he walked up to me, and I still swear that he knew where he was on his property. He knew exactly where he was standing, because all of a sudden he had that little vampire strip of lights right across his eyes. And he looked at me, and he said, as calm and as clear as could be, I can conjure demons, can you? Well, my response was, I don't want to conjure demons. And his immediate response to that was, but that's not what I asked you. I said, I can conjure demons, can you? Because I can. 
Um, and then it got even weirder after that. So, you know, the, the, yes, he knew what was behind the door. They were his protectors. They were his family. In fact, I truly believe in the long run, he was trying to bring his grandfather's spirit back and got a lot more than what he bargained for. Once yeah. you open that gate, mm -hmm. be very like you said before, be careful what you wish for when you're playing around with this stuff because you may get more than you bargained for. Well, see, and that's the scary yeah. thing. He wasn't playing around. Um, when we went into his house proper, the bungalow, uh, his bookshelves were expansive. They had books on them. I didn't recognize half of them. Dave recognized uh, David recognized quite a few of them, but, you know, I recognized certain authors. He had full sets of Crowley, um, had a copy of the Necromnicon, which is a very arguable book, um, had just eight, looked like ancient texts and manuscripts and things like that. And this man was the prototypical redneck. He had a little pork pie hat on. He was wearing his coveralls. His cheek was bulged out with tobacco, had, you know, the work boots on. I, he was a redneck. If you think redneck, 1930s, this is the man you would picture in your mind. But his library was the library of a very well-versed uh, sorcerer or magician. Mm. Um, and not a stage magician, but one who's actually believes he can conjure and, and, and bring things up. So, yeah, it was really an interesting um, dichotomy. It was, he wasn't he, who he should have been, and he was a lot more than what he looked like. Yeah, that's, that's, sure. that's creepy in itself. Did you ask him why, in the name of God, would he want to conjure up something? Like a demon? Like, what a question to ask somebody. I can conjure up demons, can you? Well, they were, he considered them his helpers. They could, he considered them his guards. They took care of his property. They, they were the ones that had told him, hey, maybe you should come back and check out these people that are going around on your property and check it out. So, you know, they, he was using them and using them in the traditional way to get things done that he needed done. Did you both did, did David and you both pick up on the fact that he was using the dark side for personal gain? It was pretty apparent pretty quick. Just mm. as I said again, that that dark energy, it has a certain feeling to it, and it was definitely all over this. And you know, when we when we asked him questions about, you know, how long has this been going on? It's oh well, this has always gone on on this property. Um, he he thought it was funny that we asked him about the dancing stove when he was living in the apartment that overlooked the bungalow. He woke up in the middle of the night because he heard yelling, and he had the house rented to a bunch of uh, young frat boys, and they were all running out and pretty much left everything they owned in the middle of the night because the stove started dancing, and he thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. So, yeah, we were dealing with somebody who was pretty pretty uh insane okay for lack <laughs> of a better word yeah i you know it's one thing to pray to your guardian angel or, or you know the positive aspects of life the light if you will 
Mm-hmm. But to go looking in the dark side for personal gain, I think you're, it's like playing with a Ouija board. Once you open up that gate, like we said before, you're into some deep, deep stuff. And I would caution folks uh, that are listening right now, you know, if you're unsure and you're a novice, just don't do it. You know, you always hear on television, don't try this at home for professionals only. <laughs> that would be pretty good advice in a situation like this. Okay. What was what were David's reactions to it all? You know, David's actions were rather low key. Once I once he really picked up on the intelligence of what we were dealing with, mm. and once he had spent a little bit of time talking to Clevis, he really kind of became very reticent, and almost to a certain extent pushed me out in front and allowed me to take the brunt of everything. I mean, that's, and a lot of what happened, happened to me. Um, I, I seem to have, I think what it is, is I think the thing got my scent and it just, it went after me. Um, you saw you, know, you me come get, right back to that metaphor of the dog, how evil true. formed in it. Yeah, the shape of the dog. And because you're the empath, Right? The feeling well, aspects of it all. And also, I was green. I really didn't know anything. I was the weak link. Um, there was a time deeper into the book as we worked to figure out how we could deal with this thing that I became stronger and we had other people in there that actually became the... Because we had to form a circle. This wasn't something that just David and I could deal with on our own. Um, and what was interesting is the circle almost formed by itself uh people came into our lives to help us out with this so you know and but for the most part i was truly a weak link and i was the catalyst that brought the opposition to clevis and his spirits so i was definitely i think had the main target on me throughout this whole wonderful Thing. <laughs> Wonderful thing. <laughs> Robbie Luntz, our guest tonight, folks. We're talking about his book, Demon Street USA. He co-wrote it with a fellow by the name of David Roundtree, www.nightfrightshow.com. It's chilling. I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, please settle in, folks. We have a lot more to go and a lot more stories uh, to tell as well. www.nightfrightshow.com. Okay, Robbie. Now, when did you finally realize you and David, that you're dealing with something far more than just a disgruntled ghost because you've come into their space, that you're dealing with something absolutely that was never human, that is really from the depths of hell, for lack of a way of putting it. When did you realize that, that you might be in physical danger uh, and you might be putting others in physical danger? You know, the danger part, Dave realized the danger part immediately um i really think after we left the property the first time we had a we knew that it this was going to be more than just a haunted house and once we had had our encounter with clevis it was it was just very obvious that he had conjured something up um he was proud of it he made no bones about it so we knew right away and you know that was 
I think that's and that's the big difference, quite frankly, between this book and a lot of books you read like this. Folks, if you're just joining us, lots of time left. Get the toffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. Uh, it's still raining out there. It's turned to ice rain at this point. So settle in. If you're near a fireplace, even better. Just put your feet up and relax. Get the comforter up. We're going to be talking about demons tonight. The book is called Demon Street USA, the true story of a real haunted house. It's more than just haunted, folks. They may have un opened up a gateway here uh, to something that not only malevolent but pure evil. Robbie Luntz is our guest tonight, and he co-wrote it with David Roundtree. Robbie, I had uh, just alluded to the fact that perhaps a gate had been opened up. Can we talk about something that you call the Devil's Mill Hopper? The Devil's Mill Hopper is a very, very wonderful place. It's, um, it's a sinkhole, in essence, that is about 200 feet deep, and it's just a, a perfect pillar. But when you go down in it, it's just... It's a whole nother. It's a whole nother place. It's a magical. Um, it's a magical place to be. And for me, it, that wasn't terrifying at all. That was very embracing. I felt when I was down there as though Mother Earth had her arms around me. One of the things about Demon Street that is really kind of different is it's a story about how do you get yourself into a position of being able to deal with these things. Mm. Not so much in dealing with them, but how do you build yourself up to an ability to at least help the poor woman who's in so much trouble? And one of the ways that, that David did this for me is he took me to the Devil's Mill Hopper. And uh, yes, once I made it down to the bottom of the Mill Hopper, I really, I entered another reality. It was incredible. I just... Uh, the way that the light was shining through and it, it's very hard to describe everything was twinkly and bright and wonderful and the fact that you have all of these springs and kind of small waterfalls that go down into it there's an effervescence to the air that is just wonderful and some of the things that are always interesting and one of the things that happened throughout this book on the shamanic path because this is truly the book is it's about the haunting, it's about the demon, but it really is about David putting me on the shaman's path so we can go back there and kick that thing's butt. But uh, that path is, is, when you're doing things, it was amazing. Anytime we were doing something that was spiritual, anytime that we were doing th something that was shamanic, there wouldn't be anybody there. Hmm. It's like everyone would leave you alone and you would enter a whole different reality. Even at the at the Devil's Mill Hopper, nobody was there, and it's a state historic site. And when we were finally done, when we finally got back out of the Mill Hopper and were on the path, and it's like the whole school emptied out, and people were on the path laughing and and cracking up, and it was very interesting how it allowed me to do what I needed to do down there. Did you feel more empowered after coming out of there? Oh, absolutely. Or did you take on what was obviously in your face? You know, you'd went through some horrible things, um, the dog appearing in your home, mm -hmm. uh, threatening. Also, you were electrocuted. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, to me, that's a warning. I don't know if you took it that way, but as soon as you said it, I thought, 
oh man, yeah, somebody's trying to tell you something here. Like, stay back. And then, of course, we've got to tell that story that I've been alluding to all night too. The fact that you were up on a scaffolding on a cross on a catwalk. It was actually an I beam. So oh. I was up in the rafters. Um, when you're hanging a show, you need yeah. to have your rigging points. Yep. And I was scouting for a show, and it, the place we were in is amazing. At the University of Florida, they had the University Auditorium. And it's an old Gothic, it's collegiate wow. Gothic. So you actually have gargoyles at the end of all of the wooden pillars, except that instead of being gargoyles, you have one that has a football and a leather helmet and an engineer with a cigar, and he's got a gear in his hand, and then you have the scholar, and then and the at the uh, the musician. So you're the the place to hang from is a, a I beam subset into this old church, and I was standing at the end of the of the I beam, and you had to get off of the catwalk because I had to find out exactly where it laid at the on the floor. So I was standing at the very end of this catwalk. Um, I'd gotten off of it, walked to the end of the I-beam. So I'm on, you know, that wide. And it's 70 feet between me and the deck. And now, mind you, everybody out there, this was back in 1985. I was not wearing a harness. I was not locked into any safety system. I would never, ever do that today. But Kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> So I'm standing out at the end, I look down. When I look down, in my mind's eye, I saw myself dive off of this I-beam and do a perfect swan dive with a full layout, except I landed on the seats and just broke into just pieces. And in my mind, I see this perfectly. And the minute I hit the ground, I just feel this shove in the middle of my back. Now. It's interesting because at the time, it didn't occur to me quite honestly. When I turned around, there was somebody up in the catwalk with me. And this was a big dude. I mean, this guy was a bouncer on the weekends. People didn't mess with him. And I looked at him, and he was white, and he was shaking. And as I got closer to him, I could tell that his, his knuckles on holding onto this catwalk, he was just, he was just so upset. And I looked at him and I said, are you okay? And he said, it went through me. I said, excuse me? He said, it went through me. And at that point, quite honestly, I wasn't even thinking about me any longer. It was like, you're okay. It was after me. It wasn't after you. And I got him to, it took me a while to get him to actually let go of the catwalk and to go back to, it was a series of ladders because we actually had to climb behind a, uh, a pipe organ so I got him down when we got to the first ladder quite frankly he broke down he sat there for 15 minutes crying and I, I held him got him to go down the first ladder at the bottom of the first ladder he sat down and again just broke down and then when I got him down to the to the deck he sat down again at that point I ran and grabbed David of course David's like well where are you guys thought you fell it's like yeah Good. And I brought David back, and I mean, we sat there for probably 30 minutes at that point with our arms around this poor gentleman, and then we went ahead and we took him out, and we, um, Dave opened up the back of his van, opened up this trunk, 
and it was like the supernatural A team because it was full of feathers and candles and he started handing this young gentleman all these things and said here do this and you know it wasn't until I started writing that chapter that I realized that that damn thing had tried to kill me because I was so concerned and so upset about our co-worker the interesting thing is, is I ended up getting to know his brother really well many years later and I asked him about this incident and he said that he never talked about it it just he quit school he moved to the other side of the country and he never said anything to his family and that's where I, you know we were talking about this and one of the reasons why David and I wrote this book is as a warning to everybody out there it, it impacts your life you don't want to go messing because it can change you and when you have a certain grasp of reality and all of a sudden that's torn away from you and you have nothing to hold on to anymore um, that's what happened to our poor co-worker I mean he just it really it impacted him completely so shattered completely shattered yes. mm -hmm. absolutely why well, it referenced in the beginning a blue arc over a gravestone with the epitaph not dead can you tell us that story yes I can you know you remarked earlier about David laughing um, yeah. on the on the First Nations there's certain paths and one of the teachers in a lot of the different nations is coyote at the time in 1985 uh, David was walking the coyote path. Now, coyote is renowned as a trickster. Uh, he gets you to basically leave your bounds of reality by tricking you into doing things, by taking you and shaking you at your depth uh, and fooling you into doing it and not necessarily going, here, do this, and this will happen, but, hey, why don't you do this? And that's a lot of what we had. So my dear friend Dave, takes me out to a graveyard way out in the Florida boonies and the, actually the third governor of Florida is buried there in this wonderful mausoleum and I thought that's where we were going because well that was the focal point of the graveyard but no he takes me way back down deep and if you've ever been in a southern swamp when you get a lot of the oak trees and you get a lot of the the Spanish moss hanging it can really block out the light so even though it was a wonderful day, the minute we got down deep into under these oak trees, it was it was dim, and he took me way, way back into the deepest part of this graveyard. And there, there was a, looked like it was poured concrete. And somebody took a stick as it was still wet and wrote not dead in it. And, well, I might as well cop to this, Brent, because you're going to figure it out sooner or later. Sometimes... I'm just not so bright. And <laughs> my dear friend Dave leaned over and he said, hey, touch the stone. And I went, oh, what the heck? And I did. And I'm an, I am a certified entertainment electrician. My whole career I've dealt with electricity. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. And it hurts. And I pulled my hand away from that stone and I saw a three-foot electric arc that connected my finger to that stone. And it, did, it felt like an electrical blast. And then I looked around because 
I was cussing up a storm, sounded like 30 sailors that all hit their finger with a hammer. And I couldn't see my dear friend Dave anywhere. I looked, I looked, and then I looked down. And he was laying at my feet, curled up in a ball, tears coming down his face. All I could hear was, he found it the most amusing thing he had ever seen in his life. And, you know, you'd think that, okay, well, maybe I, there was a reason it was there. It was, there was an electrical line or something. We went back out later. I watched somebody else touch the stone. Nothing happened. A demon, a, an entity that has that energy, that power, I believe that they can take control of a person and basically override that person's energy, that person's personality, and, and become that person. Um, but then again, demons are so, so rare. Um, you were talking about it a little bit earlier. And, you know, if somebody is a butthead in life, when you meet their ghost, their ghost is going to be a butthead. It's just, you know, your personality sticks around a little bit. Um, they say nothing if, if they were a drummer, too. <laughs> if you, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a nature spirit, that nature spirit has its own agenda. And you might be doing something that puts you in the way of that spirit's agenda. When that happens, it's going to move you. You might consider it the most evil, horrible thing that's ever happened to you in your life. But it's completely neutral. The spirit just wants you out of the way. And then there are, there are the demons and there are the shadow beings. Those are very are rare. Difference? I haven't heard about shadow beings. What are the differences between demons then, Robbie, and shadow beings? They're, they seem to be two different entities. A demon is, is something that needs to be conjured. It needs to be invited. And it, ha it seems to feed on negativity, on fear, on anger. It actually, uh, a demon is not going to want to really see, if you're the focus of their um, haunting, they're not going to want to see you dead. You're a food source. For lack of better terms, they're feeding on all of your negative energies, and that's why they go into your head, and that's why they can get those things that you're most afraid of. A shadow being seems to be, a, there's a term in shamanism called an inorganic being, and the shadow beings seem to be these inorganic beings. They're, they've never been human, they've never been incarnated. Um, they're just a nastiness that's out there that has a different agenda. And personally, I think they just would rather kill you. Um, David believes that they are actually uh, an antimatter being that feeds on your souls. It makes sense to me because if you talk with a lot of sensitives and a lot of psychics, you know, they, they're iffy on the demons, but when it comes to the shadow people, it's like, oh, no, I would we don't even want anything to do with them. And, but then again, a lot of times you'll see the, the ghosts will appear as the shadow beings because that's more frightening to people. So you, you really have to be careful what you're dealing with is what you're saying. Absolutely. Because there's so many levels to this. Now, 
do these shadow demons, shadow people, do they live in this dimension? You had talked about multi-dimensions before. Do you think they're multi-dimensional travelers? Is there something that's attracted, why they're attracted to our particular reality? Um, I think that, again, they get, they get energy somehow from our reality. I don't believe they originate here. I think that in instances, they can get trapped here. And when they get trapped here, then they're locked into like a, a, a building or a property. Um, but for the most part, I think when they get here, a lot of times it's an environment that's conducive to their health, whatever that may be. Um, and they mean us absolute harm. The demons, I think, like us because, well, <laughs> we're food. So... <laughs> We're a food source, okay. Now, on the other hand, like what David and I found out, when all of a sudden you're stepping in between their food source and them, that's when they will take it out on you and try to do you bodily harm. That's also another thing. Ghosts cannot physically harm you. They can spook you. They can perhaps make you do something that you wouldn't, necessarily do that puts you in harm's way but physically doing you harm is they can't do that they don't have the energy they don't have the the abilities on this plane to do that on the other hand these shadow people and nature spirits and uh, demons do have the amount of energy to physically interact with you I think that's really well put um, yeah again uh, I would say the advice that I'm getting from you tonight for novices is be very, very prudent, extremely mm -hmm. prudent. And, you know, there's a lot of hobbyists out there now. And instead of going, I don't know, playing baseball on the weekend or softball or whatever, right, or going for a bike ride. You know, I, I, I understand the, the wanting to prove it scientifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, David is, is adamant about that. Um, so I, I understand that. I, un I understand that wanting to go to a haunted house. That's what got me into this mess in the first place. <laughs> so I understand that. But be aware that, you know, I think go in with an open mind. Don't be antagonistic. The whole attitude of immediately going into a place with the, I'm going to debunk this, um, it puts you at a disadvantage. You know, the minute that you don't believe in any of it doesn't mean that it can't still affect you. Mm. And that's, that's where the sticky wicket is. You know, all of the people going in there with the whole mindset of we're going to debunk this. Um, they, I think they're, allowing, they're leaving themselves open a little bit. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you next time.
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.